Peter, your IMDb says you were born or grew up in Texas? Yeah, grew up in Texas, right across the river from uh, Oklahoma in a town called Denison. Um, no memories of it. Uh, we transferred out when I was 18 months old, um, headed up to, at the time, what might as well have been Mars to us. It was uh, New Hampshire, uh, much different. Uh, so that's where I spent my golden years. Uh, grew up there, loved it, um, eventually moved to Colorado and have been progressively heading out west ever since. Now here I am in Los Angeles. And did you go to film school? I did. Um, I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder. Wonderful school, um, a bit avant-garde, definitely an emphasis on uh, film theory, documentary, uh, not so much the Hollywood studio system. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it was a good school, um, very fine professors, uh, many of whom I'm still in touch with today. Uh, but as soon as I graduated, I knew the kind of filmmaking I wanted to do, so I went right down the road, right out here. And you've done mostly horror films. I know you said you, you don't want to be just totally put in that one category, but was that your plan? No, no, it wasn't my plan. Um, my first couple of films, actually, when I, when, I, when I came out to L.A., I needed a few years to put the pieces in place to start making movies. And uh, my first couple of films were dramas. Um, there was a thriller in there, but it was uh, not at all horror. Um, I made a few of those and decided to, in a sense, lighten it up a little bit to have some fun and go into kind of a fun genre type of picture. Uh, and I have a soft spot for horror. I've always loved horror. I always will love horror. And um, it was not until my third or fourth picture in, I believe, um, that I delved into that genre. And then I rolled off a number in a row and those started to pick up steam and I started to get branded as a horror filmmaker. And uh, which I'll take, I, I, I enjoy it. But no, I've, I've delved into a number of genres and I imagine I'll continue to in years to come. When you were at film school, you said it was a bit avant-garde. So were they, because, I mean, because they were in Colorado, did they not sort of know that Hollywood kind of has its own set of rules, some of which are fantastic and some of which are terribly unethical? <laughs> oh, they were all too aware of the type of business. I mean, it certainly was the antithesis to going to, say, USC, where you are trained, certainly the master's program, where they train you for the industry and what type of pictures they're looking to make out there and how to break into the industry. Plus, you're out there in Los Angeles metro and you're meeting these contacts that can get you right into the business. Um, CU was more about teaching you from a grassroots standpoint, just the love of film itself. Again, a lot of it was documentary or experimental or independent, I guess would be a better word to wrap up all of it. They weren't so interested in training you to go out there and make the next, block, make the next blockbuster. It wasn't on their radar at all. They wanted to teach you about the classics, uh, the silent period, and um, 40s, 50s, 60s, all the great film movements in all the different countries, which was an invaluable education. I loved it. I think if I'm going to be in this industry and to make film, I want to understand where it started, where it bloomed and where it's evolved and all those kind of things. So that was really their focus, not so much turning you into the next Spielberg. That would have been the last thing on their mind. Um, you know, but, but it taught me... Um, a lot of important things in terms of what kind of filmmaker I wanted to be, what kind of stories I wanted to tell. And then I took that, and when I came out to Los Angeles, I you know, let that evolve on its own. 
But um, I think it probably took an extra couple of steps, whereas if you go to a certain other school or a certain program out here, from day one, they're teaching you, I would think, how to get into the studio system and, and survive in, in this city in the industry. It's just apples and oranges. Right. Well, you think Colorado being, um, I mean, this may sound so cliche, but much more grounded, just, just sort of by... I think the location probably has something to do with it, plus Boulder is known for being Boulder, yeah. you know, so, sounds really nice. Yeah, yeah, it's gorgeous, and it really was. It was a, a strong um, film school. By and large, every film program um, is going to be a little bit different. Um, you should know what kind of film program it's going to be. Um, obviously, that can determine what kind of track you're taking in the next step in, in your career. You know, USC is great for people looking to come out and make films in, in California, but that not, might not be the best choice for everybody. There's a lot of different types of stories to tell and a lot of different types of filmmakers. So, you know, you should know um, kind of what their specialties are, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. Um, Boulder, um, it's just apples and oranges to, to other film programs, not better or worse. It's, it was its own kind of unique entity and um, I loved it. That's great. Yeah, sounds really nice. Yes. Mm -hmm. Having been out here several years, do you think that the film and television industry is fair? Um, I think uh, fair in the sense that, like everything in life, it's, it's, it's a battle to stand out, fair or not. Um, I think whatever things that are, have been obstacles or challenges, fair or, or whatnot, nowadays has been around for a long time. In terms of, of how extreme it is, I think it might go up and down through the years. But regardless of what the circumstances are, um, it's always going to be a scrap to put your career together and to move forward. I, I, to me, the biggest challenge of being out here isn't really what's been what's fair or not fair. It's been access. Um, these days, especially because everyone can purchase gear, everyone can edit gear, everyone can bring together crews and make their own films, which is great, by the way. But it also means that you're up against millions of aspiring filmmakers. And so it's become, it was ever so difficult before, but it's become even more so now to stand out from the ocean of other people. Um, you know, there's really no way to have direct access to managers or to agents, entertainment attorneys for cold submissions. They don't even take a look at them anymore and haven't for several years. And uh, I think you couldn't necessarily just walk up to them in years past, but um, there were certain ways you could kind of skirt around and, and get through to them that you don't have now. You really these days have to write a script that is blazing hot or make a film that in its own way goes viral, whether that's online or through the festival circuit, to even have a shot. And it's gotta be seen by the right people on the right day. And um, without that, you're in for an uphill battle. That's just the reality of being out here with so many filmmakers. That, to me, is, is the biggest challenge, more so than what I would consider fair or not fair, because you're going to find that in any industry. Well, okay, interesting. So, so you don't have to brand it as unfair. It's just that it's, it's so crowded that it, it creates its own rules, maybe. Yeah, in a sense, I would say it, it, I'm so focused on how to stand out and to keep honing my craft and make the best films I can and write the best scripts I can and getting them into the hands of the right people that I don't have time to think about what's fair or not fair. Um, that's just kind of something I, you know, table for later. 
Sure. Um, so I, I haven't really put that much thought into it. These days, of course, you can go online or read headlines, and I'm sure there's fair and unfair things left, right, and center. But I just haven't had time to focus on it. I've been way too focused on just trying to kind of get ahead one step at a time. Since you love horror, even though I know you want to do other films and you've done drama in the past, I think I read something where you put that horror doesn't have to be gruesome to be good and to be to effectively scare the audience. Can you touch on that? Yeah, I, uh, you know, and I say this with respect to everyone because everyone enjoys something different. And I can certainly respect that. For me personally, I was always a fan of the horror films of yesteryear, uh, the universal classics and, and so on and so forth. Films that relied on atmosphere and drama and conflict and um, those type of things to really bring out a different kind of scare. They didn't need to throw a cat from around a corner and they didn't need to tear someone's face off. It was a kind of, it was the kind of horror that would really get under your skin or maybe it wouldn't hit you until the next day. Uh, something that was, you know, just kind of marrow deep. It would just kind of get inside you and it was all about the story. Um, that trend in Hollywood and in other places kind of goes back and forth. There was a time in the early 2000s when what used to be considered extreme horror became mainstream in terms of violence and things like that. You had the hostels coming out, you had Saw coming out, and that became very popular. Really disturbing, realistic violence. Um, again, to each their own. If that's your thing, no problem. But it wasn't for me. So I was sitting there for many years going, well, gee, I mean, is horror really where I want to be right now? Maybe I need to explore some other genres and whatever. But, you know, the fact is the world over horror is always being made in different ways, surprising ways. And right when I was at my low point of like, maybe I should start making some dramas, I'll just take a break from horror for a bit. I saw a movie called Let the Right One In, uh, which you may have heard of, out of Sweden. And I went, bah! My kind of horror is still around. <laughs> it was just a beautiful horror film uh, and uh, a strong drama and just a really interesting movie that, although it did have violence, it wasn't dependent upon it. It was relying on different variables to unsettle you and, and to scare you. And so um, I realized I'm, I'm gonna be okay. There's still films out there that, that are being made that I like and lets me know that I should stick into this genre and just keep making my own, my own thing. But wrapping around your original question, I, I certainly don't think you need gore or extreme language or extreme what have yous to make a great horror picture. I think there's a lot of different ways to do it and you should do it however you enjoy it the most and there's gonna be an audience for it. I'm trying to think, I mean, even The Exorcist, it has some horror, you know, gore and, and, you know, I'm not even talking about the part where she throws up, but if you take that, and that was so scary to me oh, back in the day. Deeply Because disturbing. it was the music and the mystery sure. and just this yeah. sort of just unknown, you know, and, oh, yeah. and but, yeah, and then you take what's today and they need to have so many kills per whatever minute to keep the audience. Yeah. You know? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm sure there were horror films even back in the day that were considered more commercial or more extreme or, or, or whatever it may be. But, you know, one of the things I love about horror is it's always evolving, always surprising you. And there's always a new bold vision that's going to come from left field that will influence the next 10 years of what horror is going to be. At one point it was extreme violence, at one point, you know, what became to be known as torture porn, 
Uh, there was found footage and, there, and, and who knows how many subgenres these days. There's a zombie subgenre and, and so on and so forth. It's always evolving and, and in that sense, there's always an opportunity for you to be the guy that comes up with something new and really exciting that will surprise the world. And just when you think, God, what other stories are there to tell? We've told every story that one can possibly tell. You'll go and you'll see a film and you're just like, wow, why didn't I think of that? Something simplistic and genius all at the same time. Um, something scary in a new way. Something that takes a genre and turns it on its head. You know, um, I don't know. It's a great genre and, and I'm, I'm up and excited to see what, what the next filmmaker is gonna bring us. Even with Hereditary, um there were definitely several scenes that were like, okay, I can't see this, but the main crux of it was this like family story. And within that was, was there was a lot of like fear around certain mm -hmm. things. And I thought that they did that effectively. You know, I, I, I was on the edge of my seat. Yes, there were parts where I just didn't want to see them, but for, for the most part, I was actually incredibly impressed. Yeah, I, I have a lot of admiration for those type of filmmakers who are able to tell a story that wasn't designed to be super marketable or to hit all the bullet points because, you know, I'm always trying to make a living, trying to get more projects up and running. And one of the challenges I'll often run into is this is really cool. This is a great concept that you've come up with, but I don't know how to sell it. If you want to get something done with us, come back to us with something that hits all the marketing keynotes. Give us something that hits all the beats that everyone's seen before. And you're like, well, you know, I do want to get a movie made and I'd love to, sure. you know, yeah. do business, but it makes it challenging, I guess, to make something that's different and unique and doesn't follow all the rules or makes up some of its own rules. Um, so, uh, but where there's a will, there's a way. So when you find movies like that, someone got made or the Babadook or anyone of another, the witch is another one, just movies where you're like, they're almost the antithesis of what one would usually consider a marketable genre picture because they're so different and they're so kind of slow burns and just kind of doing it their own way. Um, you know, I would love to do a project like that. So whenever I see someone do it, it, it it's very exciting for me and I commend them a lot for it because that's, that's something that I aspire to do as, as well in the years ahead. So when you don't have a lot of money to make a film, is it almost where you're making a better story in some sense? I think I, I read something where you said that those are actually some of the, the better stories that you've created. As always, it, it depends who you ask. With me, because for so many years I didn't have very much money and I would make movies with whatever I had. Uh, I've made films for 200 bucks, $500, a thousand. And um, yes, because you were forced to think economically, you couldn't afford to bring in all the best gear, all the best lights. Um, you couldn't afford cranes. You couldn't afford multiple takes. You'd had to do everything in a day. Um, so it would force you to really dig into a scene and go, this is how I want to tell this scene. And so for the most part, maybe not every time, but for the most part, that would, I would find force me to shoot a, a scene and, and then I'd watch the complete picture and it would come out stronger than I think if I'd had 25 different takes and 15 different angles and, and all the time and all the money in the world. So it's been a focusing agent for me. Um, that being said, um, you know, on any one of those, if I'd had the opportunity to have more money and more coverage, I probably would have gladly taken it. Oh, sure. <laughs> but no, I, I think, um, you know, anytime you can dive into a scene and, and tell it well, 
without all the tricks up your sleeve, that's always a good sign. You know, everything, if you do happen to have more time and more money and more crew and all the, and all the goodies, great, use it, have fun with it, do things you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. But I think, you know, any good script and any good story should be, able, should be told and have the ability to be told with a camera and two guys right there. You know what I mean? Like it, it should almost tell itself. All you're doing is strengthening it and bringing it to life, but you really shouldn't need everything to tell it for you. Would you ever try to get a producer to work on your film for free? I would and I have. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, once I got into the feature world, the rules were a little different. Um, that scenario has come up actually, but it's a little trickier and things can change. In the short film world, all bets are off. It's whatever you can do to get the film made. Um, I, once I'd built up a, a body of work, I'd done five, six, seven short films and I'd started to brand myself and try to get my work out there and get some press articles, I mean, whatever. I would use that to sell myself to producers or aspiring producers. Anyone who could help me, I would bring in so long if, if there was a way I could help them. So a lot of these people were, were people who just wanted to be involved in films. They may not have a lot of experience, but they had some funding. And I'd say, listen, I'm not gonna take your money. Um, I turned down a lot of students and a lot of young people, but if they could afford it, I'd take a few hundred dollars. I'd give them some producing credits. I would ask them to come to set. I would teach them some things on the job, um, let them be involved, and of course do the premiere and all that stuff. But I was really never good at wanting to simply take people's money. Um, but I would always try to give them something, especially those that were really volunteering their time and their efforts, weren't being paid a thing. Um, I wanted it to be something that everyone was growing in, in, in one way or another, whether it was experience or film currency, meaning IMDb credits and, and press, something that they could use for themselves. But absolutely, there were many times where I was like, listen, I could use your help here. Can't afford to pay up, but I won't take up a week of your time. Come out, help me for a day, help me for two days. I would make it manageable so that it was something that they could do. And when I was younger, there were people who'd ask me, listen, I've got this feature or short film, whatever, whatever it may be, um, can you come out and help for free? It's for three weeks in Georgia. And I'm like, I can't do it. I got, I got bills, you know, can't do it. So I would, um, it, whenever I would put people in that position, I would, I would make sure it was something that was reasonable and, um, and make the best of it. And, and by and large, it was always a great experience from, from, from both ends. Uh, you have how many features that, you've, that you're either, either working on now or? Um, I have half a dozen in various forms of development, but I have one in post-production. Uh, I'm sorry, I had wrapped up post-production that's locking up distribution right now. Oh, great. And then I have one uh, escape room, which came out in 2017, which was my debut feature. Oh, great. Um, and so, and once I made the jump from shorts to features with Escape Room, there was, at least for the time being, no looking back. I said, I'm not getting any younger. I got to focus full time on features now and, and make a go of it. Sure. Because one of the main reasons I did those shorts for all those years, and I did 17, 18 shorts, whatever it was, had a blast, um, was to, pre to prepare myself for the feature world to challenge myself and to put myself through trial by fire in every way I could think of. Working with kids, working at night, working with you know ensemble cast, working with no lights, anything I could think of, I would write into a script and challenge myself to prepare for the feature world. 
And once Escape Room came out, things started to pick up. Nice. So uh, my focus has been on that ever since, and, and, and I'm excited for those to come out, and I want a lot more to come out. <laughs> you know, I just want things to get busier. I think you said too that you didn't want to take on massive amounts of debt, and I think that's really smart because yes. so many people do, and then they end up tapping out, and then they can't. Yeah. And then they can't answer their phone, and yeah. they, you know what I'm saying? And that's no way to live. And and it, it, I, I get it if it's to pay medical bills, it's one thing, but to make a movie, it's yeah. like this shouldn't be where now this is going to be this like no. noose that I'm. I'm no, carrying. And, and that again comes down to who you ask, because I know a lot of filmmakers who went all in max out credit cards and they made it that's true i, I yeah but by that's and true. large it's a very dangerous move that i personally would never do so i got lucky with escape room i i sold that script to some people and and um it got financed nothing to do with my own personal credit um but I, yeah to me um you know and especially since i have kids but many filmmakers do um i, I just that's a road i will, will never go down I will always go out there, push my scripts out, pitch them, and so on and so forth through a variety of, of avenues. But I can never imagine maxing everything out because everything in the film business is a gamble. And usually it's a gamble that's stacked against you. That's just the way the business is. There's so many people vying for X amount of money and X amount of positions and X amount of slate positions, if you will, companies looking for films that it's just really hard. So to put all your marbles in, especially if you're not 100% certain that you're ready to make a movie that's gonna really make a difference and really get sold really quick, you know, it's a gamble. I won't sit here and say don't do it because some people are gonna do what they're gonna do and it'll pay off. But for me, you know, it's, it's not a risk I'm gonna take. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you don't have kids, okay, then, uh, you know, a lot of things yeah. are- And some are, people are just, they believe that strongly in their concept and they are able to execute it. I have seen times when people go all in and they've got all the passion. They've got all the right ingredients inside to have made that move. They believe in themselves, they work hard, they sacrifice for it, and they make a movie, you know, that just doesn't work. You know, it just wasn't a movie that was you know, digestible to distributors. It wasn't something they wanted to pick up. And so they get their film made, they made it. That's half the battle, but then they could never sell it. Mm -hmm. So they never made any money back off of it. And so this is a film that kind of sits on a shelf and is never really seen by the public unless they put it on YouTube or maybe they find some way to self-distribute, which is possible. But, you know, again, it's all part of the same bubble. It's a risk, you know, and in the film business, everything's a risk. So it comes down to the individual. What do you want to risk and, and when do you want to risk it? And for me, I, I just tend to be on the more conservative side of that, even if it means it's gonna take me longer to reach a certain goal, I'll go the slower route, I'll, pl I'll, I'll play it safe. Sure, so then, I'm sorry, you did, you, you paid the producers or they were, they... they for the feature? Yeah. Uh, the feature, my script, uh, for Escape Room at least, it was a uh, producer found it, he loved it, he introduced it to some other people, some middlemen who brought it to a production company. And um, they financed it. Uh, <clears throat> once they agreed to do the project, they had the money in place in I think 24 or 48 hours, really quick. And after that, it just snowballed really fast. They were shooting like within a month and so on and so forth. Um, but no, someone else, someone else paid for that. Um, you know, and for that movie and the one after that, uh, it was a sub million dollar movie. I'm not talking studio level, $50 million movies here. 
These are smaller movies. And when you're talking about a million dollars or under, you're talking private investors. You know, you're talking about generally some really rich people who want to make <laughs> movies. And so um, we got lucky with Escape Room. The producers had an investor, um, great guy who really wanted to be involved. And, it, you know, financing came entirely through him. And uh, I think he's actually financed several more pictures through that particular company since then. But, you know, that's just how that movie came together. Every movie is its own story in terms of financing, how it comes together, what challenges there are. But certainly with the money, you know, it's, it's always a, an interesting process. How many years did you work on just short films? I did short films in college, of course. So that was going back to... Uh, well, I'll put it this way. I've been making short films since I was a kid with the old block camcorder that had to be plugged into the wall. But if we're talking about real films with crews, um, you know, professional or at least semi-professional, I think my first was in 99 or 2000. Um, I took about a four-year break once I moved to Los Angeles, didn't know anybody, didn't have any money, so I needed to put some pieces together. Um, and once I did that, uh, that probably was 2005. And I think my last short film, to date at least, would have been a fun little crime um, action film called Sweet Madness, which I believe was 2015. So a good solid 10 years of just non-student, we're not talking student films or kid films, like me going out there, pulling in investors and producers, pulling the crew together, and just getting it done. It was probably a good solid 10, 11 years. So that four years that you came here and you weren't making films, what was that like? Because you, you'd planned, you'd been making films since you were a kid, you go to film school in a really cool town, and, and then you come here and essentially you probably feel like, oh wow, now I'm gonna be living what I set out to do. But. Well, reality hits. Um, as much as I loved the film school, again, it didn't prepare you to go into this industry, not in Los Angeles. I came out, in a sense, cold turkey. Um, I'd been taught how to load some mags and I wrote like a short film script in my senior uh, film class, but I didn't know how to pull a crew together. I didn't know how to produce. I didn't know about permits. I didn't know anything about any of it. I knew I had to learn it though. Um, I also didn't have any money, I had to get a job. Pretty soon you find yourself working a job or two. Um, and then I tried, uh, I was doing that, I got some internships on the side to try to meet people, figure out how the business worked. I eventually got a job at a literary agency representing writers and directors and, and so on and so forth to learn that side of the business. I started to put together my long-term plan at that point. I wanted to know who was who in the town. Um, I wanted to know how contracts worked what was fair, what wasn't fair. I wanted to learn how these people got representation, what it took. Um, and it just took time to get these things in place. And while I was doing these jobs, I had access to no gear. I didn't have money to pay for gear. I didn't know people to ask if they'd come and volunteer. I had no press, no brand to sell myself, to get people to want to work with me for nothing. So it took a number of years to get to a place where I was like, okay, I, I'm as close as I'm going to be. I mean, I could wait another 10 years, but I'm as close as I'm going to be to um, having the ability to do my first post-college film. And that was around 2005. I just eventually just pulled the trigger. I said, I'm doing it. I'll figure out the rest. At some point, you just gotta go with it. Um, and so I did. I made that film for about seven or $8,000. That was the last film I shot on actual film. 
Um, after that, everything went digital and it saved me a tremendous amount of money. Um, but yeah, I, it, it, that's something that, that film students and everything um, can and should be aware of. Um, in terms of, of me, I just didn't know any better. I went to a film school that taught me some amazing things about the history of film. And I'm so glad I learned it, but I came out here like a baby. I didn't know anybody, didn't know anything, and had to learn everything on my own from the ground up, um, which has proved beneficial to me in the long run. But at first it was challenging. You just had to find your way and just go with it. Uh, with film, you can read a million books, but there's no simple A to Z about how to make it or how to be a producer or a director or a writer. Um, so I kind of, did it the only way I knew how. I learned how on set. And whatever mistakes I made, I learned from them and didn't do them again. Um, but it, 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 and, and everyone's got their own road, that was mine. Um, so yeah, I had that little four year pause. And once that pause ended, I've been pumping out films ever since. Were you working at the literary agency the entire four years? No, what ended up, uh, well, no, I worked at the literary agency for about a year and a half. I interned at Paramount. I interned uh, for some other producers in town. Um, I worked at, I don't even remember the name of it. I worked at the mall. I worked at restaurants. I just worked. Yeah. You got to make your money. Oh, sure. Um, but that taught me early on one of the most important lessons, which for me, I always knew what I wanted to do. There was no doubt about it. And I was prepared for it to be an uphill battle for the rest of my life. And it, it has been. I mean, being a filmmaker is hard in all the best ways to me. I think everything you really love and care about is hard. You know, it takes a lot of effort and filmmaking certainly requires a lot of effort. But as I've been out here in Los Angeles, steadily working away and putting my pieces in place and kind of figuring out, okay, where is this going to lead me in five years versus 10 years? Like, where do I want to go and how am I going to get there? It took a while for me to figure out exactly what I needed to do. Um, but throughout that journey, I saw a lot of people come out wanting to do the same. They wouldn't make it very long. And one of the most common traits I saw in the people who didn't make it very long were those who um, I don't think fully appreciated how hard filmmaking is. I think they loved film. I don't think they loved filmmaking. And it's an important difference. I think that if you come out to this town with stars in your eyes, and some of these things I've, I've written about before, which you might have read some of my articles, but I think if you come out to LA to be a filmmaker and kind of the preeminent thought you have is fame and fortune, I think that's um, a fine motivation to have. But if it's your primary motivation, I think it's going to be disappointing for you because the odds are of you making it big are slim to none. I think for me uh, and for most others, if you can sit there and tell yourself, I, will, I, I would do this for free the rest of my life, working side jobs. I'm never going to make a lot of money. I'm not going to have a big house in Beverly Hills. I'm not going to you know, mingle with the stars. If you can tell yourself that I would be happy just making stories, small films that maybe will go to some festivals, but that's about it. And you're okay with that as let's say a worst case scenario, that's all you're ever gonna do and you're okay with that, I think you're on your way. That's a very good place to start. If you do achieve more and you aspire for more, I think that's perfectly fine. But to me, that's always been icing on the cake. It'll be a bonus. But I think at your core, you really need to love the process because it's, it's, it's a challenging one and it's not for everybody. Did you see anything um, 
that was eye-opening by working with these writers at the literary agency? I mean, I, I don't know how close you actually got to the writers. Maybe you didn't get that close to them, but just in terms of seeing the ones that, because I know there's writers that are frustrated with the, the you know, whether they're novelists or whatever, and it's not what they thought, and they have well, sure. editors can totally controlling their book, and it's, you know, so there's a lot of similarities. I learned a lot of, of things working at the agency. I, I think in terms of your question, the most important thing I took out of it from a strictly writing and directing standpoint is that the fight never ends because it is very, very hard to get representation from a manager standpoint, but certainly from an agency standpoint. You pretty much have to be a moneymaker to get attention from an agency. Sometimes they'll take on someone who won a big festival because they believe in them and they see them as a good investment. But what would happen often is if an agent has, say, 30 clients, these are all people who've made it. They're talented people. They've broken through from that ocean of people. Even then, um, you know, maybe the top five clients get time with the agents. Everyone else gets ignored for weeks at a time because uh, they're not the big money. They're not making the big A-list movies with the hot new director or the established director. They, you know, made something that won a big festival, Telluride or whatever it may be. Um, or they're a journeyman who's made some movies that have been successful here and there. But anyways, they're people who've made movies, many of which have been released theatrically. They've, they've made it. They're still fighting. It's going to be a scrap um, unless you're Spielberg or one of these upper, upper echelon people. It's always going to be a scrap. And I, that was something I learned early on. I said, oh, so these guys, they made it. I mean, they fought the fight and they, they emerged from... 500,000 other aspiring filmmakers and they made it. And they're still like, I need a job. Like, get, get me into a room. Let me pitch someone, pitch my script, I mean, whatever it is. So that was interesting to me. And I think both enlightening and um, I, I think advantageous. Because again, I was already kind of prepared, but it prepared me even more so to be okay with that, to be okay to never reach a point where I go, okay, boy, projects are being thrown on my lap left and right, this is great. That even after I, after I and here I am with uh, Escape Room came out theatrically worldwide, opened up number one in the UK, so it did pretty good. It was a small movie, but it did pretty good. I didn't have agencies calling me, no management companies called me, no entertainment attorneys called me. I'm still securing my own deals. And I'm getting more and more and better and better deals, but it's not like it opened the floodgates. So there's never like a, a, a door you open where it just it's easy from here on out. And I think um, a lot of people would be surprised to hear that, especially filmmakers. Escape Room is a movie that you wrote, is that right? Did I you did. also direct it? I did. Um, I had written several spec screenplays that were very ambitious, very my, you know, my hereditary or my Babadook, my let the right one in, something bold and different and atmospheric and so on. And a lot of my specs would get optioned, but not financed. It always scared the financiers. They want something you can pitch in one line, something that can easily be marketed in one genre, maybe two. So I said, okay, well, I'm getting older here. I need to write something for the first time in my life. I need to write something for them, something that they're looking for something with all the bullet points or all, all the marketing, you know, keys. I said, so my game will be, what can I write for them that I'm still proud of? Something that walks the line. That's something for them and something for me also. 
So I, you know, they like something that's got a strong hook, that's high concept, that can be produced easily, all these things. So I um, had been to an escape room and saw that it was kind of blowing up and getting more and more popular. And I said, okay, well, I'm gonna form a story around that. Long story short, I found an angle that I wanted to tell that story. I wrote it very quickly, sold it very quickly. Um, first script I ever sold that got financed immediately because it hit all their points. And I went, maybe there's something to learn from this. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was, again, it was off to the races when they financed it. It moved very quickly. But my game since then has been to balance writing, I'll say for them, but writing what's really marketable versus maybe some other types of stories that I really want to tell also. Um, I try to oscillate and, and kind of go between them a little bit without going too far into any. It's, it's, it's a fine dance that I'm still learning and will continue to learn a little bit more. But it's interesting because there's a lot of super talented writers I've seen out there who've never had a single script financed, even optioned, because they have written these bold screenplays that, you know, doesn't, isn't a great fit for say a broad audience or just a, just a very key demographic that can be sold to investors. Investors like safe bets like anybody else. So, um, you know, God bless them. I hope they get financed because some of these scripts are fantastic scripts. But if you are a new script writer and you are looking to be like, gosh, I want to get, I do anything to get optioned that one time, let me get optioned. It is something worth considering. Keep fighting the good fight, but you know, if you're gonna be in the business of filmmaking, there is a business aspect to it, and that includes marketable material. What's currently trending? Right now it's you know, female-driven grounded thrillers or IP content, whatever it is, but keep your finger on the pulse. And at times, give them what they want, but inject enough of yourself into it that it's something you'd be really proud of. So what was the process like once you finished writing Escape Room? How are you? knowing where to send it out. I mean, that's that's really fascinating. So you go to this escape room, you go, oh, okay, this is cool. I've been to one, it's really neat. It's kind of cool too, you're with strangers, like trying to figure something out and there's just a lot yeah. of fun to it. But you you go, okay, so I've got a hit on these beats, great, okay, so you finish it. Probably had maybe one or two people look at it, I don't know, I'm just assuming. Um, I may have had my younger sister, Aubrey, read it. Okay. Um, but not many. What some people will do, and listen, I haven't done everything the way some real professional other screenwriters would do. Some guys, there's certain routes you might go where you take it to prestigious uh, breakdown services and they cover it and, and they go, this is amazing or this is great, but you really need to fix X, Y, and Z. Um, there's a number of things you can do that are legitimate ways to get it properly prepared. Um, early on, I just never did that. <laughs> I never did that. I, I certainly not with Escape Room. I have with some of my scripts since then, and it's been actually pretty invaluable in getting them optioned. But with Escape Room, I just wrote it for as simple as it was. I was like, I don't need to take the time or the money to get someone professional to cover it. I know what it is. I wrote it for the people. I know what they want. This is enough. This is what it is. And, and, and it turned out it was. Um, in terms of how I got it out for people to see, there's different routes I've learned along the way. Um, for many years, I literally put scripts out on, God, Craigslist, online, free sites. Craigslist, which might waste your time 99% of the time. In what section? Screenwriters, I believe, okay. or writers. They've changed since, Escape, since that one got done. Now it's a paid site. 
and um, they've adjusted some of the rules a little bit. So I don't know if you can do it anymore, but, um, and I went on Craigslist to hire a crew. I used it for years. But oh, sure. Anyways, sure. Um, I had put scripts out there for years, nothing. But the right guy saw it on the right day. On Craigslist. On Craigslist. Wow. And said, let's hop on the phone. And we hopped on the phone. Conversation went well. Met in person. Conversation went well. Sold it. Do you still have the post? Did you do like a screenshot of No, it? I don't oh, have the post. I'm still in touch with the guy all the time. <laughs> uh, and other guys, I have another picture that's coming together now. I, I can't divulge details or keeping it all under wraps, but I'm sure. hoping it's my game changer. It's going at an A-list level, far bigger budget than anything I've ever done. That, the seedling of that deal began through, I think, LinkedIn. Some guy, the right guy on the right day, saw a post of mine or saw my page and went, hey, you got anything? And I said, sure. And I pitched him a bunch of concepts. Um, he picked one or two of them or whatever. I sent it to him. He goes, okay, this is cool. Let me read this script. And usually they'll say that and you'll hear from him never again. Or six weeks down the road, he called me two hours later and said, I want it. I know exactly who I'm taking it to. And it was off to the races. So these sites that don't cost any money, um, that's another thing. I picked up through my years is, is it takes a lot of time, but get yourself out there. Craigslist, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, build yourself a brand um, and, and network. My first several years making short films, I was so busy making films, I never networked, never marketed the films, barely ever. Well, I made posters, but I didn't do a whole lot with them. Um, I've changed my ways <laughs> since then. Um, I've definitely focused, certainly when I was ready to jump into the feature world, I started reaching out to anyone and everyone I could that I knew was a mover and a shaker or someone who could make a big difference in my career. And you reach out to them for an introduction and you might get, you will get uh, rejected or no answer a thousand times, but all you need is that one. If you can get one person to get you back and you can pitch your ideas to them, you might just catch them on that day. And that has worked for me again and again and again. Now it's buried within years of not hearing anything, but that's where it was. I didn't have CAA representing me. I didn't have Zero Gravity or some of these big management companies. I just had me. And most filmmakers who are working their way up just have themselves. So you have to put yourself out there. You got to put your material out there. And, um, with my screenplays, I started putting them into all the most prestigious screenwriting contests I could find. Only the most prestigious, because that's really the only ones that agencies and people are looking out for. And if you finish in the top three or the top five, nothing below that usually, but the top three or top five, you'll get a call from these people. So anyways, you can, you can, there's a number of ways to get your scripts out there to producers or whatever. Just got to find it. When you were driving to meet this person, from this Craigslist post, what's going through your mind? Um, you know, I wasn't nervous. I wasn't excited. I've been in the business long enough to be very even keel. Whether I get news that would be considered a blow or whether it's news that would be considered life-changing. I always take it even keel because, you know, anything can happen in this town. And usually if it's really good, it comes down to earth a little bit. And if it's really bad, it's not ever that bad. I mean, so when I was on the way to meet this guy, I'd had so many meetings with past producers on different projects, and I'd had so many of my scripts optioned that it wasn't, I, it just wasn't a big deal to me. I went there prepared for however it might go. He liked the script, 
I'll have a meeting with him, see if he's a nice guy. He'll say yes, he'll say no, I'll move on to the next one. You do it enough time over so many years, you know, it, it, it kind of ceases to affect you. It ceases to affect me as much. And I think part of that is a defense mechanism because if you're living and dying by the rejection or the success of each project, that's a hard way to live life. Because in the film business, you're going to be rejected for years. I don't care how famous you are. And you'll have some successes too. Enjoy them, you know, grieve the losses that you have. But I mean, I, you know, you gotta kind of, you know, keep your head on your shoulders. So then once you realized that this person was legit and they really did want to option your script, what were the steps? They drew up a contract and they presented it to you? Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. With this particular producer, it was less formal than most. Um, with many deals I've done since then, you've got legal teams involved, very comprehensive contracts. Um, there's various protocols and steps that they take. With this guy, um, fun-loving guy, nicest guy, he's like, okay, I'll type up something. You wanna do it, I wanna do it, here's your, here's your signature, here's my signature, that's good enough, we'll move on. And uh, it, was, it was a short form agreement is basically what it was. And the longer form agreement came later on once the production company had, had technically optioned slash purchased the script, more contracts were signed. But at first um, um, it was very informal. And, and a lot of these, I've learned a lot of these producers and filmmakers who kind of live within this million dollar and under um, uh, budget world, it's, it tends to be very informal. <laughs> you know, sometimes a little bit more than I would like. I would like to kind of cover the bases a little bit more. Um, but by and large, you're not talking about millions and millions of dollars. These are people who just want to make a movie. And uh, many times in the past, that was me. So I said, okay, fine. This is fine. You know, if I get screwed on this, I'm not going to get screwed by much. And I get a movie under the belt. So, um, But I, I, to my recollection, it was a very simple agreement based largely on, on, you know, in good faith, we do this and we promise to do this and we'll talk later. And um, I don't recall the exact amount of days anymore, but it just, compared to my past experiences where it's like, I'll option it for a year and you hear nothing for a year, just nothing ever really happens. This was just like, I've got this guy, no, we'll give it to him. He knows these guys who are looking for this material. They're kind of a startup and they're really doing a lot of pictures right now. It went to them. I had one meeting with them. I, I mean, the money was there within days. Wow. And uh, it was jumping straight into pre-production. It was a very, very fast production. So it was, you know, head spinningly fast. But, um, you know, it was, it was it, it, all those new experiences are always good experiences to me. Uh, I've, I've found that in, in all, especially in the feature world is, is you encounter different people and different deals and each feature is always a different organism unto itself, both in terms of the personnel and the contracts and all the variables involved, that both the good and bad experiences are, are beneficial to you because you learn from both of them. So it was an interesting process. So with the bad, are there certain red flags that when you, let's say, go to a meeting with someone and you, you, you keep it even keel and you're driving there and you're like, okay, could happen, maybe not. Yes. But then somebody says something, yes. something happens and you go, bam, this is, this is yes. a no-go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm certainly not special. A lot of filmmakers have been around for a long time, but I was going, I know I've been saying, I've been doing this long enough time that I have a good instinct for all that stuff. The red flags are usually very obvious and very fast uh, and very early on. 
So you have a decision at that point to make. Is it worth it, some of these flags to continue onward or not? And, and, and as I've built my currency and my leverage and, and uh, the kind of people I want to work with and the kind of projects I want to do, uh, more and more and more, I will avoid working with those types of people or getting involved in certain types of productions. And I have years ago, I may not have done it, but certainly in the last couple of years, I've turned down several projects. I've turned down offers to write movies, feature movies. I've turned down directing jobs. I've turned down option agreements because I went, you know what? I spotted the red flags. I want no part of it. Sorry, what, what are some of the red Just Maybe just a, a handful. Like what? It's hard to really get into it. Some of them are so specific, I'd rather not go yeah, there. Yeah, no, please, we don't no, want any. Um, no, um, some just, of them, um, you just know. Just general? Um, some of them could be as simple as um, personality, the type of people you want to work with, how grueling it's going to make the experience. I think for most, for me, when I want to get involved in a feature production, which is kind of like going to war, you're getting deeply involved in this stuff, being on sets, a pressure cooker, for, you know, time and money is on the line all the time. You wanna, I wanna work with people that I have a positive synergy with. We all have a singular vision of what we want this film or that project to be. Um, this isn't to say that you have to get along with everybody, um, but there are certain personality types and uh, certain procedures I've seen put in place that you know, just make things harder than they need to be. Um, some of it's crossed into uh, legal issues. Um, some of it is just simply, you know, I just don't want to work for a bully. <laughs> you know, it can, yeah. it, uh, the issues can be large or small, but whatever it is, um, you know, it, it's, it's something that you can only attain through experience. You know, you, you start to just pick up on it like anything else in life. You just get a gut reaction. And, and again, most of these guys uh, in most of these deals, the flags are, are numerous, obvious, and and demonstrate it early. You pick on it early, like first meeting. Usually you'll know, okay, I see some things here and now I have my decision to make. Do I grind through, do I make it work, or do I detour off to the left and take the next project? But you know, for everyone watching, I mean, they will, as they start to get into more and more deals, especially feature deals, you know, you'll, you'll pick it up. I mean, most of it's, it's, most of it's in plain sight. Well, aside from someone maybe being a social bully or, or, or just an abrasive personality or whatever, are, are there other things like, you know, I, like, hey, how about it's a, it's a handshake? Sure. And they don't want to put anything in an email. They only want to call you. Yeah. They don't want anything in writing. Like, I'm putting words in your mouth. I'm sorry. No, no, just... that's, that's totally fine. Um, sure. Having people who are working with a team you trust is important. Um, working with a team that you're comfortable with and you're cohesive with. It's difficult to be on a production. Some filmmakers might, might sign on to a feature deal because I just want to get a feature made. And they sign on with a team that maybe wasn't the best fit for their script. They have a different vision than you. Now you're like this the whole production. Hmm. And usually at the end you get a picture that's muddied. There is no singular vision. Now it's a mash of both. Um, so you should always know who you're going into business with. Get a fill form. That's what those meetings are for. Figure out who you're comfortable with and who you're not comfortable with. Um, a lot of the time, it's also not the kind of flags that are raised once you're deep into production. It's like the first call or two. Uh, for instance, you'd ask for examples. For right. me, very quickly now, I'll know a producer who's going to waste my time for six months and never get anything done. 
mind you, a lot of these guys are totally decent people. Not a malicious bone in their body, but I know enough now that when I hear certain things or I see the way they do certain things or what their planners or lack thereof for their production in terms of getting financing or putting together a pitch deck or where they're gonna do their business, so on and so forth, I know this person's never gonna get this picture made. They'll try, but they're never gonna get it made. Um, so, you know, and again, it's hard to explain how you pick that up. It's fairly basic stuff, but for me, I just kind of figured it out a long time ago. So I try to work with people where I go, this guy is serious business. He knows what he's doing. I've heard his plan, it's sound. This is a man with experience or a woman. Um, this is someone who has, they're saying all the right things. I know exactly what they're talking about. I visualize what their business proposal is. They, they, they do everything legit. Uh, none of it's lazy or um, incomplete or rushed. You know, simple little things like that. But I try my best to work with people who I'm confident have the ability to actually get my scripts made. Otherwise, I won't do this. Otherwise, I'll turn down the option offer, I guess, if you will. And um, that's the most important step. The second, of course, is sure, I'd love them to be people that we have a good synergy together. Sure. We can talk about the project and, and move forward in a way that's not only healthy for the relationship and leads to more features down the line. Uh, more collaborations, but also is in the best interest of the, of the script itself. Because you never want to sign on to one of these things and see this script that you bled for to kind of create and bring it to life kind of turn into this kind of, you know, haphazard completed project that you're just like, I don't even want my friends to see it. Like, I don't want anyone to see it. I luckily haven't had anything that severe, but but I can see how it can get there very quickly if you're not careful. So I guess the lesson would be, especially early on, yes, you need to get a feature under your belt. And sometimes you might have to sacrifice a little bit to get it done, but you know, don't throw all your eggs in one basket just to get your project made. Make sure it's made with the right people. Find the right people, people that you're comfortable with and, and, and you know, go for that. It's perfectly fine to pass on a few potential parties and, and find the right fit. With Escape Room, you wrote the script. Did you also pitch yourself as being the director or was that something that came later? Right off the bat, I always knew I wanted to write and direct. I'd done that with all my short films. But directing in the feature world is very tricky. Investors like their pool of people. Um, unless you have a theatrically distributed feature under your belt with name talent, you're usually not gonna get on their list. Even if you've done amazing shorts, it's just not gonna happen. Uh, uh, I won't say that's every investor out there, but just in my experience, I've had people say, hey, we love your reels. We love your short films. It's not gonna happen. I hope you understand. And I go, it's your money. Of course I understand. I mean, you need to work with people that you're confident can handle a feature and whatnot. Anyways, um, so I knew I needed to put myself in a position where I had some leverage if I was ever gonna direct one of my own scripts, we'll say. So Escape Room comes around and the guys love the script and one of the producers says, I want to direct it. And I said, no deal. I said, I direct it or it's no deal. I gambled and I was willing to gamble. Just like gambling with money in Vegas, uh, you know, if it's money that you can afford to lose, then gamble it. Um, you know, same thing with, with film. I was willing to lose the deal over it. It wasn't a bluff um, because I knew that was my best shot in years to actually direct a feature. And if I passed it up and just sold them the script, 
I'm back at playing the game I've been playing for years, is trying to get myself in a position to do it again. So I gamble. I said, um, it's me or it's a no-go. And he kind of looked down at the table for a minute, and then he looked back up. He goes, okay. <laughs> so I said, great. So he, of course, had to take me to the, eventually what would be the production company and the um, sales agents in one. And they had to sign off for me also, but I had one meeting with them and I'd been doing shorts for years. So I, I knew what I was talking about. I didn't go, I wasn't trying to bluff my way into directing a feature. I knew it was uh, of a scale that I could handle. I wasn't in over my head, answered all their questions and was confident all the things you should be in a business meeting. And uh, after one fairly brief meeting, the, the agreement was made and, and we were off and ready to go. And that's the same, not every script I write, I would make the same gamble, I would make the same move. Some of my scripts aren't passion projects, I'm just writing them uh, to be sold. Um, but I do have some that I would say the same thing again and I wouldn't be bluffing, it's me or I'll keep it on the shelf. So um, not everyone will be forced to be in that position, but you know that's where you get into the situation where I wanna direct this, I'll max out my credit cards. They won't give it to me, I'm just gonna do it myself. Yeah. Um, so I, luckily I didn't have to go down that route, but anyways, I engineered a situation where I could not force my way in, but use what little leverage I had to my advantage and luckily it panned out. And where was the film shot? Where did you film it? Um, by and large, it was shot in uh, Burbank, local. Oh, great. Um, we had a, uh, a good portion of the film, I wanted to write something that could be done relatively inexpensive, so a good portion of the film is inside an escape room. And so um, they built one on a stage. Um, in this building, they built it in a camera house that was still open for business. It was a camera rental house is what it was. We had a little stage and we shot some scenes with Skeet Ulrich and all these guys in the hallways out there also in a building that was open for business. So people would be leaving their office and walk through the shot. It was incredible, I was just like, I wasn't prepared for that. You just roll with it. What are you going to do? But it was this building right next to the Burbank airport. So we had planes flying overhead all the time, ruining our shots. So we had to deal with that also. And then we had some desert shots that were shot out in Lancaster and some other various locations. But by and large, it was uh, local because it was all designed to be. I wanted to write something that was just the, relatively speaking, was just the easiest thing to produce. What's the most attractive thing I can make for investors? This is something that can be shot real quick for very little money, high concept, good hook, why wouldn't we produce it? I was just trying to give them everything you could give them and reduce the amount of you know, no's that they could possibly come up with. That's pretty cool. Wow, so you, it's just like these green lights that just happened with that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's, um, I didn't know what would happen after that. I was like, wow, here I am, I've been working my whole life, I've got a movie playing in theaters. I was like, this is just, that's great. Um, and I was like, you know, it's a small movie, so I don't know what attention I'm gonna get. But uh, as I mentioned before, no agency called, no management company called. Um, it, I, I did get press, but not like Hollywood Reporter. Like, it didn't really do, do that much for me. So I, I didn't know what to expect. As I said, the fight never ends. So I've got some, a bunch of feature deals that are pending right now. They're in pre-production, they're in development. One's locking up distribution. Not a one of them stemmed from escape room. Those were other deals that I've just kept up the fight, kept out there going, just grinding away. Um, 
you know, so it's, it's, an, it's an interesting profession we've, we've chosen. You never know what you're going to get. Again, as I said, I, I'm even keel about it. Uh, I'm always working on new projects and I'll never stop. And I'm not surprised that Escape Room didn't open up the floodgates for me and I'm actually okay with it. You just kind of keep going. Every day you keep going and I've been doing it for so many years now um, that it's all I know. But all the more reason for beginner directors and beginner writers to prepare themselves for that. Like the fight kind of is endless. It's kind of forever. And I think for most of us, for me, the fight is part of what we love about the business because not all of us can do what it is that we do. It's, to me, it's, uh, it's kind of a privilege to be able to say that not only do you survive the business, but you thrive in it. So that's, you kind of gra grasp onto the positive aspects of it and just keep going. Looking back on it now, what were the drawbacks and the benefits to making so many shorts? And do you, do you think it was worth it? I know you wanted to make a feature much sooner. Yeah, I would say that for me personally, it's worked out just fine. I've taken an, an unusual path. I've taken a very patient path. I wanted to prepare myself as much as possible about my short films, as I'd mentioned before, and I, and I did that. Um, so I didn't want to get into the director's chair for a feature and blow it. It's hard enough to get that first chance. I didn't want to get there and blow it and never get another chance. So for me, it worked out nicely, but it took 15 years, 15 odd years, whatever it was, 10 years. Um, whereas other people go, listen, I'm going to go for it from the beginning. And again, some of them make it early. And since they're younger than me, I mean, you know, agencies love hot up and coming talent. So if you're young mid twenties and you make something really cool, you're going to get more attention than if I make something cool. It's just kind of the way the business, at least the industry out here is just kind of set up. So I can't say the way I did it is right or wrong or, 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 or whatnot. Um, you know, I've always been a patient guy. I've always taken my own road to things. So, you know, uh, I, I think it's been beneficial to me. Obviously, the drawbacks are I'm 40 and I only have what will soon be two features under my belt. And if I'd taken a slightly different path, maybe I'd have 10 at this point. You know, but that's a drawback I'm, I'm, I'm willing to live with. I, I think I did it the only way that it was ever going to work for me. You know, and uh, it's an interesting question because if you ask 10 other filmmakers what they think of my uh, strategy, they might laugh their heads off for all I know. I, I don't know. Um, but it's just, it, it's a weird business. Everyone's on their own. You are totally on, you can read as many books on the subject as you want. The reality is, is no one's going to give you anything. You got to go out there and earn it through talent and hard work, and perseverance and all those kind of things. And every single filmmaker, myself included, every single filmmaker I've ever met literally has their own fascinating stories to how they got it done, how they got noticed. And some of them might be more successful than others in terms of how far they've risen or what level of movies they're doing now. But all of them um, just literally found their way through the labyrinthian maze that is Hollywood and, and have made it wherever they are these days. Can you recommend any resources for young filmmakers starting out? I know you said everybody has their own path. Are there some resources that have been really valuable for you in terms of DIY, sort of not just not learning about film theory or whatever? But no, sure, sure. No, I understand. I, listen, I, I'm sure there's a million books on the subject and I read many in college that were perfectly fine. Literally in terms of people from a nuts and bolts standpoint, 
you know, what do I do? How do I, how do I start directing at all or whatever? Um, I would recommend just getting on set, get on as a PA, get on whatever you can, get on a lot of sets, figure out how a set works. You don't have to become an expert at it. You don't have to spend five years on the set, but get on the set, figure it out, figure it out the world that you're going to be living in and leading at some point as, as, as certainly as a director, know that world. And that is the very seedling to you starting to put together your own world. I would recommend working at places that will teach you what you need to know. If you're not on set, go work at a camera rental house, learn the gear. Um, if you want to get into writing and producing, work at an agency work at a management company, work at a production company. You know, I, I would learn who's in your business. Who do you want to know? There's a lot of assistants out there. F figure out who works for who, network in terms of gear, become an expert at it. You don't have to become, you know, uh, someone who's paid a thousand dollars a day to run the gear, but know it from a general standpoint. Know what you need, know what you don't need. Um, if you're writing, I would say, one of the best steps you can do is, is read great screenplays. They're all online these days anyhow. Read The Godfather, read whatever. You can read new scripts, old scripts. Read, 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 and then read some more. Figure out what made them great. Then start writing yourself and write and write and write. And probably gonna be pretty awful at first. It'll get better until you start to find your own voice. And you know that's what you do, whether you're learning the gear and pulling it together to start tackling, producing, and directing your own short film, or whether you're writing your own scripts, don't be intimidated by it, don't be scared by it, you just do it. And then you do it again, and then you do it again, and again, and again, and keep honing it until you learn what you need to. And I think both will learn along the way, more so than most books can tell you, learn through experience. You say that horror sparks conversation? I think a great story sparks conversation. Um, I think horror can spark certain visceral reactions. Um, yeah, I, I, I think a great film, my dream as a filmmaker is have one of my scripts or one of my films cause an audience, audience to wanna leave the theater and go and talk about it and debate about it and think about it. I don't necessarily wanna make the type of movie that they eat their popcorn, they walk away, and by the time they get to their car, they don't even remember what they just saw. Some fun movie, whatever. I think any great story, horror included, is something that will make people talk. And, and I mentioned privilege before. I, I do think it's a privilege to be in a position where I can build stories and characters and tell stories that I think aim to make you see the world and your place in it from maybe a different perspective. I think that's a very powerful thing that we do and have the ability to do. And um, I aspire to do it even better than I, than I do so now. But yeah, in short, I think any great film should spark discussion. I think that's the goal. I think you should be something that inspires you or traumatizes you or scares you or whatever reaction is the point of your story. I think that should always be the point to get a reaction. Otherwise, your film's just putting people to sleep, <laughs> you know? So at least, that, so that's, that's, what, that's what I aim for. How did you learn how to write a feature length script? Yeah, I never went to any master programs. I never went to any film programs that specifically taught me my craft. Um, as I'd mentioned, CU was more about film theory and, and various things like that. It didn't really teach me in great depth what you need to 
do as a director or a writer. I had to learn all that on my own. Whether I did it right or wrong, who's to say? But for me, um, as I alluded to before, I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And through all that writing, through all those years, you start to find your own voice. And um, when I wasn't writing, I was reading. Again, great scripts, different kinds of scripts. The more type of scripts, the better. Um, <clears throat> different styles, you know, you never want to get attached to one person's style because you might start to emulate it. I mean, read different styles and go, gosh, this is amazing. I never thought you could do it this way. And what I eventually earned, learned through the years is, is um, when I'm writing my scripts, I don't just want to write a scene or write a story. Um, I bring literally the words, the structure of the sentences themselves to life. I break things apart, certain descriptions, certain ways I do it depending on the project. It should be an experience to read it. And it should be something that literally pulls the reader from one page to the next to where they can't stop. If your script doesn't hook the reader on the first page, you're done. That's just the reality is, is a lot of agents and, and managers will joke, well, I'll give you the old five page rule. It was the rule of thumb. Some say 10, but that means I'll read the first five pages. And if it doesn't have me, I don't read the rest because these guys are reading hundreds of scripts a week. They don't got time and they've got a good radar. They know what gets it. In my personal opinion, I think they give it half a page or a page. If your script just isn't really good, both from a grammatical, structural story standpoint, whatever it is, immediately um, you're not going to gain any traction with them. So that's the goal as a writer, is you keep writing. And when I was teaching myself to write, I, I aspired to get to that point. I want to pull them in from the first sentence and never let them go. And how to achieve that in a variety of different genres and you know whatever your story is about was a challenge. And you just keep working on it until you get it. Did you read any books or uh, screenwriting books or no? It was just all scripts and watching yeah. movies? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's a good point you just made watching watch a lot of movies watch some good movies you can learn a lot from that what some people will do because you know writing a scene with a lot of dialogue can be tricky because once you film it you go boy this is so it's just a bunch of talking heads this is so dialogue heavy watch a great scene between two characters talking in a movie and then write it down most of the time not all the time with Aaron Sorkin it might be a different choice or, or a different uh, circumstance but with most writers, once you write down the dialogue from one of your favorite movies, you'll see it's a lot shorter than you think. These guys know what they're doing. They know how to write something that, that doesn't turn into a five-page monologue. Watch a lot of movies. Watch them and learn from them. And then again, keep reading, um, reading lots of different screenplays. Obviously, I'm sure there's some invaluable books out there you could read. And obviously, there's master programs. You can go out there and get a master's in screenwriting. And for all I know, you can write the pants off of me after going there for a year. Um, but there's certainly those types of things are, are available to anyone at, at, at any time. I never had the time or money for it. So I did it, you could say, the hard way. Um, but, you know, for me, it was just, I guess I'd learned through my directing and producing that experience breeds experience. And, and that's what pushed me forward. So it was the same with my writing. I wasn't reading books, I was just writing, and, and what reading I was doing was other people's work. What's working for them? What are they doing that I'm not doing in my scripts? And I would never try to emulate their voice, because um, every great script writer, you can read it and you can almost go, I know who wrote this. Would never try to emulate that. 
but I would just from a broad stroke standpoint, look and go, what are they doing that's so great? You know, you, obviously the best script, screenplays I've ever read, as I'm reading it, I visualize the movie. I don't even think about the writing. It just pulls you into such a degree that before you know it, you've gone through it and you've been perfectly visualizing the film and you don't feel yourself turning the pages. You don't feel yourself reading the paragraphs. How do I get to that point? So I would read these guys and read them and read them and just try to make my own writing better. And I'm still doing that to this day, always trying to push myself to be better. Did you see, um, is it Nosferatu with Bela Lugosi? It was like- Oh, the original? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yes. And there's, there's no dialogue, right? It's, oh yeah. Oh, there is? Okay. No, no, I'm saying, um, which I love by the way, no dialogue. In fact, that was another challenge I gave myself back when I was doing shorts. I did a short with no dialogue. Can I tell a great story without a single word? Um, I love things like, in, in fact, one of my favorite features when I was a kid was, um, I think it was Black Stallion. Black Stallion oh, it was such a good movie. But pretty much the first half of the film is dialogue free. It's a boy and a, and a horse on an island. Right. And it's fabulous. It's so good. And there's not a word. You know, or if there are, it's just a couple here and there. Um, that's still something I'm mastering when it comes to writing because, you know, as the general rule of thumb is it's a minute per page when you're writing. You write a page, uh, you, one page of your script equals about a minute of screen time. By and large, I guess that's true, but I mean, if you don't have dialogue, it really can alter things. And I ran into challenges with that with Escape Room because there was certain segments that were dialogue free, a lot of action happening in, inside of this escape room. And when we got to actually shooting it, I went, this is gonna be a lot shorter than I'd originally planned. You know, I don't wanna have like the nicest like 50 minute feature ever. So I had to kind of work my way around that and kind of find some other ways to tell the story. But, you know, I'm a big fan of that. I'm, did you, Nosferatu is something you? I think I watched the first part of it and it was just very slow and I just found it very interesting because it was yeah. creepy and it yeah. was scary yeah but but just yeah the 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 slow the pacing of it and yeah it's not everyone's cup of tea Some, sure you know listen sometimes the slow burn is a little bit too slow um, there's another old film by uh, I think it was Carl Theodore Dreyer around the same time as Nosferatu I believe 1932 1931-ish called Vampire that one you should check out. Same thing, all atmosphere, amazing experimental photography of these kind of foreboding shadow figures. Right, uh -huh. Didn't have special effects, so it was all practical, but it was very clever. And uh, it was just a very different take than Nosferatu, but very interesting. Not everyone's cup of tea. I showed it to a group of friends once and they all split. It was me watching the film on my own. <laughs> but, but it's still a worthy experience if you have the time. Does a horror screenplay have its own structure? To me, regardless of genre, they're all gonna have this, you know, whatever structure you wanna give it. Every film I've told, if you wanna break structure, you can. I think as long as you know the rules, you can break the rules. So there's times where I've written screenplays that are broken into three acts. There's times where I've written screenplays that are broken down into between six and eight key plot points. Um, and those, to date, for me, have crossed all genres, not horror-specific. So, no, I, I wouldn't say that horror has its own structure. I mean, but one of the great things about writing is there's, 
again, I think if you know the rules, you can break the rules, is uh, I've seen scripts that break the usual 3x structure and they don't follow the usual beats and they're amazing. <laughs> I wish they would get made. Um, they are just, some of them are just, gosh, I don't want to say meandering has a negative connotation, but they just are flowing along on their own trajectory and you don't know where it's going to go because you're, I think most people are trained at the usual pacing, certainly with Hollywood films. They follow certain acts, certain key points. There's a certain flow to it that a lot of, most of our big hit movies, if you break them down, you go, oh my God, it's almost to the page. They follow these formulas. Um, some of these scripts that I've read don't do that. Not all of them are great, but the ones I have read that are great, very brave in the sense they went, I'm just gonna write what I'm gonna write. And you can like it or not, but very clever, very, very clever. No discernible break between X and, and no discernible structure in the way you usually would think about it, but very clever stuff. Then is there any parts of um, writing horror that differs in terms of um, the, the actual you know, dynamics of screenwriting? I mean, I get it. You're trying to have a scare, a kill, something every so often. But other than that? It's... No. I mean, again, each writer has to attack each project, you know, depending on what the needs of that story are. But in my experience, structure is a structure. A story is a story. It can be dramatic, it can be scary, it can be funny, but you're kind of following the same rules to tell a classic story. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, I don't remember them all anymore, but someone had mentioned that there's, you know, you basically have only three or four primary stories that we ever tell. This love story and so on and so forth, not very many. We dress them up differently and we created these different genres, but the stories pretty much were all used to the same basic structure. How do you create an awesome horror protagonist? How do you create an awesome horror protagonist? Antagonist or protagonist? Uh, both. Both. <laughs> I said protagonist, but let's do both. I think it just comes down to, for me in particular, what horror films inspired you the most. And for me, I have certain ones that were important to me or influenced me, certain horror directors that influenced me more so than others certain life experiences, I think, certain real life fears. I think for me, I, tr I, I, I take the DNA contained with all of that and I try to put it into a memorable, memorable character. I think I don't really wanna do a character that we've seen a million times before if I can help it. I wanna make someone where you truly don't know what's gonna happen next, where you feel the stakes are heightened. Um, one of the tropes and one of the consequences of, of, of following the similar structure uh, when writing screenplays is the audience kind of by this point knows where it's going most of the time. They've seen everything. It's hard to really fool them. So whenever I'm putting together a story and whenever I'm coming up with characters, whether it's a protagonist and certainly an antagonist, is I want to do someone who, if it's a horror piece, someone who scares me. And um, you know where that comes from just depends on what, what, what the story is. But I want them to be memorable. I want them to be unique and, 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 and to stand out. I think it'd be fun if one day, if I ever did that type of story, I made one of those guys who becomes iconic. Why not have it be the next Pennywise? You know, you've seen these, these fun posters they'll do where all the bad guys are in a movie theater. I want one of my guys to be there. <laughs> you know, I want them in that group. Someone that kind of just stands out. Just like the filmmaker themselves has to find a way to stand out from the crowd, I'd love to come up with a character that 
you know, people remember and kind of stands the test of time. I think that's the goal. Well, I mean, do you think that um, the person has to be real likable? Let's just take Carrie, and I know that I use that a lot, but yeah. I found Carrie to be a very likable uh, character. I know sure. maybe people do, but and I found that um, the the antagonist in the film to be very unlikable. Yeah, I, I think as always, each story is organic, and the characters have to be true to what the story is. I am attracted to, I think good guys that aren't squeaky clean and bad guys that aren't vaudeville bad twirling their mustaches i like to muddy it up i like gray characters i think that's something that people can relate to a lot um, if you see a bad guy that at times i wouldn't say you empathize with but you can understand a little bit definitely not a james bond villain this is someone who is more relatable and in that sense can be more scary it could be someone you know or someone that you can believe running into someday and same thing with a good guy. I'm far more interested in a protagonist who I can relate to. And most people, you know, they're not perfect. Um, they've got flaws and maybe they've had some things in the past that they regret. Um, I wouldn't go as far as to say they have, you know, big sins hiding in their closet. But, you know, they have imperfections and maybe they've done things they're not proud of. I think that makes for a far more interesting character. Now, again, since I'd mentioned James Bond, if you're doing James Bond, People want a James Bond villain. They want they want a little bit of the vaudeville in there, and that's fine. And and for Carrie, you'd mentioned. I mean, Carrie, she had to be likable. She, I think, and they got Sissy Spacek was amazing in it. You had, kind of had to feel she was literally a real girl in high school who was kind of a loner, the outsider, and that's the way that character had to work. And her mother was terrifying, and <laughs> she had to be. You know, and I, I don't think making that mother empathetic would have worked from that story. So the kind of great character I'm talking about, you know, comes down to the appropriate story that it's used for. So, but for me, th those are the kind of characters that attract me, good or bad. Um, and, and generally when I'm coming up with a story, I look for ways to really kind of flesh them out in that manner. And then you had the Betty Buckley character who to some could have seen like the bad guy, but she was, uh, you know, very altruistic to Carrie yeah. and was almost like prodding her and like this tough love. And I thought that was a great thing because she didn't have that. She had all these different forces. Yeah. Listen, I think whether you're making someone who's a little bit muddy or they're just full on bad or full on good, I think the goal should be to make these characters, you know, three dimensional. You should almost be able to feel their motivations just by watching their face or their actions or what they're doing in the scene, not necessarily only with dialogue. Um, and, and, you know, from any writing standpoint, that's what you're always aiming for. No one really ever, I think, sets out to write what they would call kind of the cardboard, you know, or the carbon copy, you know, character, someone who feels very two or one dimensional and very flat. And they're kind of saying what you expect them to say. No writer sets out to do that on purpose, I think, but, you know, um, it's a tricky thing to really flesh characters out on the page. You know, I'm sure when they wrote, you know, Carrie, they didn't have Sissy Spacek there to flesh it out. They didn't have her there to bring it to life. Someone originally had to bring that character to life on the page. It's a hard thing to do. And I think um, it's something that writers must demand of themselves to really aspire to and work on and really try to get there as, as best they can. And am I there yet? I don't know, but I try to be. And, and uh, going forward as always as in everything i do 
always trying to push it to the next level. Just get a little bit better, hone your craft and, and, and keep going further and further. I think I'll do that until I die. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't know any filmmaker who feel, or writer who feels they've finally got it. They finally got it you know, at some point. I think they're all, even the best of the best, I imagine, are still honing their craft. Well, with the Nightmare on Elm Street series, or, or you know, um, it seemed like the, the, the protagonist would change, but the antagonist was always the same. And so, am I, am I correct in that? It's been through several the series, or yes. through the first film. For the, for the well, there were a few. Oh, there are many of them. Yeah, right. so yeah. I'm just trying to remember correctly. So it seemed like the the protagonist always changed, but the antagonist was always the same. Yeah, he needed more people to kill. I guess so. Yeah. Okay. All right. And and then you put in the music too, so it was oh, like sure. this fun sort of almost party feel to a lot of it. But then. You knew something. Franchises like are tricky, and I give people a lot of credit for trying to take them on. This is, um, had you mentioned Nightmare on Elm Street? Because, yeah, I, I remember thinking that when I watched about a year ago the original film. It's a scary movie. It's a really scary movie. Um, and I had forgotten how popular it was. It went on to span five or six films or whatever it was. But it became so popular, and this happens in a lot of horror franchises, that the original antagonist, uh, becomes part of the, you know, pop culture zeitgeist. He eventually became the comic relief in his own movies. Whenever he, Freddy was in the scene, he was given all the funny lines. It was very strange. <laughs> right. I think I remember that. And yeah. then they took a break for a few years and they made the new nightmare where they made him scary again. But they needed that break. He was like a different character. Still Freddy Krueger, but he was he looked a little different. He was very dark or whatever. It's, uh, it's it, <laughs> yeah. But that's Hollywood, that's, that writing a franchise, it's just another complication, I'm sure as a writer, to come in, um, you just kind of have to go with the flow and make it work. But I do remember that. I do remember there being a drastic change along the you know, life of that storyline. And you're right, it was one antagonist, always one antagonist, and the protagonists would come and go and survive or not, <laughs> not survive. You know, yeah, I enjoyed it. How does a filmmaker stay proactive in this business and not be passive? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I, I, I've always been proactive. I learned a long time ago to take your own initiative. Don't wait for anyone to give you anything. Go out there and get it. Make your own opportunities. Um, I've learned that if you're not moving forward in this business, you're moving backward. You have to stay on it. After all these years and I've got features going on and everything, I still, every day, Literally, just about every day, I'm doing something to further that. New ideas, new concepts, new networking, new contacts, whatever whatever it is, every day I have to stay on it. Um, in terms of how to stay proactive, whatever it is. If you're a writer, keep writing, keep pitching, keep entering more festivals, enter your scripts into coverage, learn from the notes that you get from these people. I mean, just stay on your craft. Directing is the same thing. Keep doing short films. Keep working on your uh, demo reel. Um, keep working to get your features together. It's a lot of it sometimes crosses over. Keep going to markets. Go to AFM. Um, pitch new material. Go to whatever festivals or markets you can afford. I mean, you know, whatever is your specialty, whether it's writing or directing, stay on it every day. I have kids. I'm a very busy guy. I find the time, even if it's late at night. The last couple of scripts that I've written that I sold, I literally wrote overnight. That's the only time I had. So um, you do what you got to do. Um, like literally, like in the middle of the night. Overnight. Oh wow. 
overnight. And, um, and I've been doing that for years and, and uh, it's fine. It's not a big deal, but the point is, is you just do what you gotta do. You stay proactive. If I'm not writing, I'm reaching out to people. I spoke with three high level executives today who responded to my introduction. It's just what you do. Um, I think certainly in this business, it's all too easy to go. I'm tired. I just don't want to this week. I've got two side jobs. You know, I'm just tired. I'll get to my script next week. That week becomes a month, that becomes a year, and pretty soon you're like, I've been out here, I made the move to this really expensive, beautiful, but very expensive city, and I don't really do anything film-oriented. Happens to a lot of people. You have to will yourself to do it, and, and obviously you should love doing it also. But just like anything else, it can be hard work. You may not be in the mood to do film stuff every day. Sometimes I'm not, but if it's not every day, you should continually feel yourself being pushed along. You know, be one of the, be that guy who like throws the pencils into the ceilings so that when you look up, there's a note that says keep working, you should be working right now kind of thing. Like, stay on it. It's just like anything else. When you wrote um, Escape Room and before you sold it, were you in a place where you're like, this train isn't moving fast enough and I need to do something? Or you were so driven because of like going to Escape Room and then you're like, okay, let me try to write one for them. I, there wasn't any panic situation. Over the years, I'd quietly resigned myself to at least the possibility that I'll never get a feature made. I'd had so many of my scripts optioned but not financed that I was like, okay, I might just be making my short films for Dream Seekers forever. And I came to peace with that. I was like, as long as I get to tell stories and produce films and direct films, I'll be okay. Doesn't mean I gave up on trying to, to achieve my goals, but I, I came to peace with it. Um, but certainly, I think as I started to get older, I said, I gotta make some moves here. I mean, I can't just keep doing what I've been doing. I gotta do something and I gotta make it happen. So I kind of gave myself a deadline. I said, I'm getting the feature done this year. Not necessarily directing it, but I'm gonna sell a script. I'm gonna write, sell the script this year. And um, I shifted up my strategy. My strategy became, what do they want? I can't just write for me. What do they want? And I pretty much had an idea through enough meetings, but what I didn't know, I just looked up. Um, again, just keep your finger on the pulse of what producers are asking for. We like your stuff, but what we're looking for this year is IP-driven content or whatever it is. And I've been in enough meetings where, in this case, horror, they said, this is what we want. Bop, 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 bop. You know, and if you don't have access to those producers, look at all the hit movies. What do they all have in common? You know, and you find the common denominators and um, do what you got to do. And for me, that's what I did. I said, this script may not be like genre redefining. It may not be the script I'm most proud of even. I put a lot of myself in it and I made a story that, that, that I'm happy with, but this is definitely not a passion project. I wrote this to be sold. This is a business decision. And I wrote it and I sold it. And I learned from that, um, not necessarily that I'm gonna throw all my chips in that basket. This is just business now, because it's film. I love it, and it's a passion to me, and it's creative fulfilling, so I'm not just in it for business. What it has taught me, though, is to stay proactive, as always, but to walk that line. You know, you can always, if you're a millionaire, go make your own passion projects and do it however you want, but if you wanna go out and get other people's money, you gotta give them a little of what they're looking for. So the challenge becomes to tell really cool, creative, interesting stories within a framework that's gonna work for other people. And I think that's a good place to start. It was a place for me and we'll see where it takes me. 
You had talked about uh, writing overnight. I was wondering if you could just take me through that process. Like, what's it like? When do you start? Is it like midnight? And where are you? And are you playing music? And what are you doing to get yourself in that headspace? And when do you stop? I learned a long time ago to write wherever and whenever I could. Sometimes there's music on, movie soundtracks or whatever type of um, story I'm writing to kind of get me going. Um, Sometimes the kids are sleeping, music goes off. I got to write in silence. Um, Sometimes it's um, sitting in a car. Sometimes it's at the airport. It's wherever I can. Not everyone's in my boat. With me, I've got a, a busy family life, which I love to death. Um, but in terms of my writing, it's, it would often be when the kids are asleep and I've gotten house chores done, <laughs> laundry. And so sometimes this it sounds it, great. I'm you know, so, well, so there you are. It's like I've worked all day. Yeah. I come home, I handle the kids and, and there's family time and you play with your kids, make sure to give them the time they need. And before you know it, it's 10 o'clock and you're exhausted. You got to get up at 6 a.m. the next morning. But you got to do your film stuff. You got to stay proactive, as we said. So it might be 10, 11 o'clock, you sit down and you start writing. <laughs> you find a quiet corner. I, I have an a office at home that I work from that has become my daughter's room. So now I write kind of anywhere else I can <laughs> at the kitchen table. Um, but yeah, um, you know, sometimes I'll have music if I'm lucky. Other times I'll keep it quieter. Um, just a little solitary lamp and you sit there. You know, in a perfect world, I have all the stuff I need. I just have nowhere to put it right now. I've got my movie posters from the child, from my childhood. I've got like, um, I've got a necklace with the, uh, what is it? The Orin from Neverending Story. I've got all these things that inspire me, you know, pirate stuff and Indiana Jones stuff and Lord knows what, all ready to go up in an office so I can sit in the midst of it and just be purely inspired and just go. Right now, I, I don't have room for it, so I basically sit in you know my kitchen with like my blank like beige walls, and I just nothing inspiring there whatsoever, and I just gotta rely on what's in here. Well, I'll let the inspiration bubble up from inside, and it's fine. You know, you go to bed at two or three in the morning; it's not gonna kill you. I mean, I'll, as they say, I'll sleep when I'm dead, I guess. You know, but you know, and the goal ultimately, I think, just like with any filmmaker, is when I have some of my projects coming up that I'm hoping are game changers, it becomes something I can do full time. And then I write during the day <laughs> and I can sleep at night. Uh, but uh, until then, you know, this is, just, this is just what you do. But I've been doing it for years and I adapted to it a long time ago. Yeah, you just had me thinking about what you said, how you had, quote, resigned yourself to being okay with just making movies, even if it wasn't- Short movies. Short movies, right. Or even if it wasn't, quote, unquote, like making it. You were fine doing that. And that's really interesting because some people might be so hurt or upset that they would just be like, no, forget it, I'm leaving and, and or I'm doing something else. And I'm just yeah. curious. Yeah, this is what I alluded to before. I think it comes down to, would you do this for free the rest of your life? Would you do this knowing that you're gonna to have to work a job or two on the side, or frankly, those will be your primary jobs, your films will be on the side. Would you um, you know, give up this and that to make films that you know maybe will be seen in festivals, will never have a budget more than $500 or $1,000? Um, and, and for me, the answer was always yes. I just love making movies. I've been doing it since I was a kid. I'll do it until I die. And yeah, I came to a point where I was like, if I never get a feature made, it won't be for lack of trying, but it's not going to kill me. I have all these movies coming together through Dream Seekers. 
Um, I enjoy it. People are seeming to enjoy it. You know, if that's what it's going to be, if that's going to be the height of where my career goes, so be it. And I was fully prepared for that because with all these people out here, again, the odds of breaking through are astronomically against you. It just is what it is. So I was like, you know, I can't just expect it to happen. And I've had all these deals fall through. I mean, it's been years. I'm like 34 years old at this point. So, you know, I, I came to peace with it. And then, um, you know, Escape Room just kind of happened when it happened. But Escape Room, again, happened on Craigslist. I just hit the guy when he happened to be online. I mean, it easily could not, I mean, that could have been passed over. I could be sitting on Escape Room, the script today, right? Why? Um, or so, someone could have been asking for your routing number to your checking account. I mean, you we're all right free to no, all I, sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Craigslist is either fantastic or yeah. you got some something that's like, yeah. you know, stay away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, listen, do you want to be meeting your film producers and setting up big deals through Craigslist? No. In fact, I don't think you let it, I don't think the system works that way anymore. Usually I use it as a way to find some mid-level crew positions. Yeah, it's a great place um, for that. Which was safe mm-hmm. enough. It was fine. Um, that was just one of those random things. I didn't know any producers. I had no agencies reaching out for me. So I just did it and it kind of panned out. Might not pan out again for 10 more years. Every other contact I've ever made or every other film deal I've ever made has been off meetings based in person uh, through references or through more professional, um, more secure, if you will, uh, sites, you know, so, to, but whatever it takes, right? I mean, that's what, that's what it is. I mean, God knows all the different ways you can meet people, but you know, it, it's been an interesting ride and we'll see what, what, what the next 10 to 20 brings. <laughs> so, so there's a section on Craigslist that's called screenwriting or at that time. This was a while back, but there was a section called I think it was writing. I think it was writing. writing. Okay. Um, and there's a crew section also, which sometimes I would sneak in there too. Yeah. And I'd get flagged very quickly and I'd just put it back up again. So I, I think people like me are probably why they changed the system. Yeah. But I knew. It's too bad. Mm-hmm. I knew producers were looking there. Interesting. They may be smaller producers, but that's okay. I wasn't writing for Paramount Studios at the time. It's like I was looking for small producers and I knew that they were on there and you just had to catch them at the right time. So That's great. ultimately I kind of took advantage of, of the system. I think it was designed to be writing. The writing section would be, I think you would put up a thing saying, I'm a writer, I'm available. I'm, uh, here it is, I'm looking to hire a writer. That's what that section is ah, really for. Okay. Not so much for you to say, I've got a script right here if you, anyone wants to pay for it or whatever. Okay. So, um, but you gotta do what you gotta do. That's all I'm saying. I, I, had, I had to get my script out there. So I I did what I did. But anyways, I think the system's changed now. I think you have to pay for postings and this, that, the other. But Craigslist come and goes. It doesn't matter. Now you got Instagram, you got Facebook, you got Twitter, you got LinkedIn, you've got Inktip, you've got um, got ScreenCraft, you've got a lot of places, Mandy, to go now to meet people. It doesn't really matter. When one goes away, there's lots of others out there. But I think the bigger picture is, despite what any of them are, there's a multitude of opportunities for writers to get their material out there. It's just a, it's just gonna matter on how much time and how much money you have to invest in certain things. Because all these writing festivals, certainly prestigious ones, they might cost you 75 bucks. And you're going up against, at times, 10, 11,000 other submissions. 
what are the odds you're gonna land on the top three and get a call from an agent? Not very good, but they can teach you a lot about your skill set and where you are compared to others. And that can really help you adjust and grow as a writer. So that could be the most important thing to take out of it. But you know, all just opportunities, different ways to get there.